podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I should really be uh, resting my voice uh, because I don't know whether Norris McWhorter is still alive. In fact, I know he's not. But uh, of course, from Record Breakers and the Guinness Book of Records, I think me and Dominic Dahl must have set some sort of record for most most commentary done in a day during the WST Classic, uh, which has just passed by in Leicester. We were on all day, me and Dominic, um, and I was very uh, lucky to have him there because what a what an absolute trooper Dominic is. Um, terrific uh, commentator and uh, great company. But anyway, we, we got through it, and uh, I'll say right from the start, congratulations to Mark Selby. Um, he was the winner of the tournament, and uh, it's always nice to see Mark win a tournament, and especially in Leicester, of course, where uh, where he grew up and where he learnt his trade in snooker and where they're very proud of him and it meant a lot to him to win it. He played well also on the last day in particular. I thought particularly against uh, John Higgins, he played really well. Um, Ali Carter, I, I know, wasn't happy that he hadn't played on the table and it was playing different to the, to the other tables. But even so, Selby played very well in that match. And then in the final, overall, very impressive against young Pang Jung Zhu who was in his first final. So Mark Selby was the winner. Um, and I'll say this as well about the tournament. It was it was put on at the last minute. I know it was kind of a low-key affair. Well, Snooker Tour did a great job to get that tournament on. I was talking to the tournament director, Mike Ganley, um, about the challenges. He was explaining the challenges of just throwing a tournament on at the last minute. There's so much to think about. You know, normally they plan their events, you know, months in advance, maybe a year in advance, how, how it's going to work operationally. They had to work all this out at very short notice. They did a good job. Um... You're never going to please everybody, obviously. Um, but you know, it was eighty thousand the winner. It wasn't. It wasn't nothing by any means. It was, a, it was a good. It was good to have it on. Better than nothing, but actually more, more than that, it, they did a good job. So I think I, I should say that right from the off. I should also say, by the way, <laughs> and this episode is called "I'm Still Here" because the first world snooker person I saw, first thing they said to me was, "Oh, how are you doing?" They said, uh, I, "I hear you're not doing your podcast anymore. Is that right?" Well, no, it's not right, actually. <laughs> we are still doing it. I'm still doing it. And, uh, you know, it kind of says a lot about, you know, kind of where they are on, on sort of following things that happen in the sport that don't involve them, maybe. But um, if only, you know, I long for the day when someone invents, let's call it a search engine on the internet, where you could type in, for example, my podcast and see if it's still going. If only there was a way to do that. But anyway, it's still here. And I'm still here, and I wasn't here earlier this week, having said that, because I was this tournament that I was working on offered no off time at all, so there was no podcast to do this week. So this is going to serve for, for the next two weeks, i.e. this week and next week, and then we'll be back after the Tour Championship, uh, hopefully with the usual schedule. Uh, just on the WST Classic as well, um, it was on Matchroom Live, people had to pay £5. There was the most extraordinary, laughable howling at the moon about the fact people had to pay a fiver. This actually shows how spoilt snooker fans are when it comes to television coverage. They just expect it to be on TV. And because this event wasn't, the idea that you had to pay five quid for the week was apparently the greatest affront, you know, to the game since, you know, since, uh, since Joe Davis smashed up a cue ball. And by the way, Joe Davis never did that. Why would he? That's just, that was just off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> actually, of course, Walter Donaldson smashed up the slates of his table, famously, and used them to pave a path. Uh, that was in the days when uh, there was no money in the game. By the way, we'll be coming on to the Ronnie O'Sullivan, Steve Dawson set to later on. I've got plenty to say on that, as have many of our listeners. But on the paying the £5 thing, here's what happened, OK? The Turkish Masters was cancelled. That was part of the Eurosport contract. Obviously, this tournament isn't because it's a new event. They didn't want to show a behind-closed-doors event. Um, and Discovery Plus, for whatever reason, didn't want to show it either. So World Snooker Tour thought, OK, well, we want to make it available to snooker fans, so we'll stream it. 
but obviously that costs money. It costs money. You have to employ people. The production it's quite a big production. There's a lot to think about. So to offset some of that, they charge people a fiver. There's not a lot of money. I don't care what anyone says. There's not a lot of money, and it's not any affront. If you don't want to pay it, fine. But don't complain that the idea about you have to pay it. People say, oh, I'm not paying that. It's a principle of the thing. What principle? It's like saying, oh, well, I'm not paying for that kind of Diet Coke. I've just bought a bottle of lemonade. Complete nonsense. Complete nonsense. It worked out per hour. We were doing about 10 hours a day. So it worked out per hour about seven or eight pence. <laughs> Less than a pound a day. Great value. I remember there was a tournament years ago, the 1992 Strawn Open. And we've had the argument here before about whether it's Strawn or Strachan, but it is Strawn. So 1992 Strawn Open. That was a tournament that was not televised. First ranking event in a long time that wasn't televised. And this was in an era, though, also, where the, the, the non-British events, you didn't see live on British television. Um, if someone had said to me then, if you pay five quid, even then, five quid, you can watch the Strawn Open on your computer. Firstly, I'd say, I'd say what's a computer? But secondly, I'd say, well, sign me up. Absolutely, I'll watch it. Um, people are acting like they're Rosa Parks, you know, refusing to move on the bus. And complete nonsense. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, this is how the modern world works. You have to pay for stuff. If it was 50 quid or even 20 quid, yeah, that probably is too much. It was a fiver for the week, you know, pay it or don't pay it. But there was nothing wrong with having to pay it, you know, because they had to make money back somehow. And here's the thing as well, by the way. World Snooker, they projected how many people would subscribe, and it was more than double what they projected. So actually, once again, because, of course, we only get this feedback from social media. Once again, in the real world, lots of people did subscribe. Lots of people enjoyed it. I heard a few accounts that Matchroom Live, that, that, that the service was sometimes playing up that's a separate issue i also do understand that people uh don't feel you know that it's right that there's no spectators that could be you know looked at because that would be a revenue source it was basically the hassle of having to employ new security people and you know it, it just cost more and whether you could offset that with the ticket sales was a was a moot point i think it was a shame i think i think it was good on the last day and well done to the hundred people who came along you know good to have a crowd there but overall the, the bottom line is I thought it, it was a, a pretty good week you know as I say better than nothing there's some good snooker played there were long days for me and Dominic but you know we're not digging the streets and yeah it passed off with Mark Selby winning another ranking event of course it had a lot big implications for the tour championship and uh, moving forward uh, for the world championship it's interesting now because you expect the tour championship of course to be basically all top 16 players but that's not the case Ding at the moment he's going to have to do something in that tournament to get in and that is stopping them making the draw for the World Championship qualifier. So that's going to kind of be a bit thorny next week because the players want to know when they're playing and who they're playing, but that's going to take a few days to resolve itself because at the moment we don't actually know who the top six team is going to be. Gary Wilson could still be in. He's not in the Tour Championship, but he could be a crucible seed depending on results coming up in Hull. Just my final point on that business about the uh, the paying the five quid. One, one dimbulb on Twitter said to me... Uh, Oh, yes, you're killing the sport. Me personally, by the way. You know, I'm trying to go there and promote it, by the way. But anyway, he said, you're killing the sport. He said, I already pay for Amazon. I pay for Netflix. I pay for Sky. Well, so what? <laughs> none of those, none of them's Tony Snooker. What's that got to do with anything? What you pay for? It's like saying, oh, I, you know, I have to pay my car insurance. I'm not going to pay five quid to watch Snooker. It's just, just ridiculous, honestly. And this is kind of going to feed into what I'm going to say later about just the attitude of people has got to improve across the board. But what we're going to do... OK, now, I'm sure people have read Ronnie O'Sullivan's comments about uh, World Snooker Tour and the state of snooker. They'll have seen Steve Dawson, the chairman of World Snooker Tour, his response. We've had emails about this. I'm going to read them out, and then I'm going to give my opinion, OK? So we'll, we'll go through them one by one. We start with James Howard. 
He said, I'd like your opinion on the recent Ronnie O'Sullivan remarks and also the response by Steve Dawson. It's no secret my dislike of O'Sullivan and his antics, and this is just another demonstration why. I'm pleased, however, with the response from Steve Dawson and agree with everything he said in his statement. O'Sullivan has, by all accounts, been <coughs> offered to sit down with the governing body to discuss improvements to the sport on numerous occasions, but seemingly can't be bothered. If it's so bad, instead of trashing the sport, which has made you a multi-millionaire, why not bother to attend meetings, which other players do, in order to grow the sport? I recall a match where there was a dispute with a referee about the placement of the whites. He said it was wrong, yet when asked to help, he flat-out refused by saying it's not my job, which went on for 15 minutes or so and resulted in his opponent having to help the referee. My point being that it's the same issue, but in a more literal sense. Instead of just moaning and criticising, why not be productive and actually help? When Judd Trump made those comments about the BBC-dated commentary... He was then approached by the BBC to do some commentary, which he duly did. Steve Dawson says in his statement, he's constantly comparing snooker to golf and tennis, both bigger sports with bigger sponsorship and revenue. Yet what does he do to improve and grow the sport, or act as an ambassador, as Rory McIlroy does? Constantly belittles and trashes the sport, which has made him a multi-billionaire, along with his slagging off of his fellow professionals. Well, obviously not as popular in the mainstream, players like Neil Robertson, Sean Murphy, Jack Lazowski, Judd Trump, etc., are far better ambassadors and role models for our great game that we all love, and as far as I'm concerned, while clearly the greatest player of all time, I frankly can't wait till O'Sullivan retires. As Steve Dawson said, no player is bigger than the game. Well, that's James Howard. I think it's pretty clear what he thinks <laughs> from that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, Vinnie O'Connell. Uh, right, uh, after Ronnie's comments about the state of snooker in the papers this week, saying the only way to sort the unfair prize money share out is for players to make a stand and refuse to play. It made me think that maybe an independent breakaway tour in Asia might be on the horizon. Snooker is massive there. Players are treated like sports stars and draw huge crowds wherever they go. Quite rightly so. They would make a nice few bob from a lucrative, well-organised exhibition tour rather than scratching for crumbs, as they currently do. Thank you, Vinny. Uh, we have... Uh, <coughs> who do we have now? Uh, oh, yes, G Giles. Giles Della Felt. Feld. See, I've been a snooker addict since I first picked up a queue, age six, in 1981 when I would then play six hours a day on my six-foot-by-three table, which took up all of the space in my bedroom. I, like many, found the podcast during lockdown and now look forward to it as a key feature of my week. Thank you. Well, thank you, Vinny. Uh, not Vinny. Uh, <laughs> Giles, that's it. Giles. Uh, recently, I, kn I know there was a bit of a spat about the health of snooker as a professional sport, with questions about the number of players able to make a decent living from the game. In fact, I started writing this email a week ago, but today Ronnie has made his voice heard about the health of the game, so I guess this is quite timely. I admit I'm a big fan of Barry Hearn and Matchroom, having grown up supporting Steve Davis. I've no doubt Snooker needed a better commercial rights partner, and the improvement in the tour, the number of tournaments and the earning potential is dramatically better. But there is a but. Snooker has not reached its potential. It's obvious that it needs huge investment, perhaps from a private equity firm, to take it to the next level. The most alarming symptom of a sport in trouble, or put more positively, failing to reach its potential, is the lack of investment. Snooker needs sponsors, and sadly the World Snooker Tour has replaced its reliance on tobacco sponsorship with gambling firms which limit its growth and the earning potential of the players. I was delighted to see Kazoo becoming a sponsor as it's the first time for a long time that a significant title sponsor outside of tobacco and betting has come into the sport. But Kazoo is in trouble and will likely pull out the tour and may not survive as a business at all. I'm just going to jump in there, uh, uh, Giles, and say <laughs> Kazoo, I think, does have its problems, but there's no actual... Um, there's no actual evidence that they're not going to continue sponsoring snooker. They have, I think, withdrawn from a couple of other things, but as far as I'm aware, that contract is in place. We, we will uh, see in due course, you know, for how long. But anyway, I'll continue Giles' email. He says, I believe the reason why the World Snooker 
uh, Tor struggles to get mainstream sponsors must be to do with the demographics of people watching snooker. If you read the sponsorship pack that's available on the WST website, it states that 69.7% of people are 45 plus, 50% are 55 plus, 75% are male. The four socioeconomic groups, A, B, one, sorry, A, B, C, one, two, C, two, D, E, each represent approximately a quarter of the audience. Snooker needs to attract a more diverse, younger and more affluent audience. If it did this, it would have broader appeal to leading global brands in the way that tennis or F1 does. It may be that before we can see the Mercedes-Benz World Snooker Championship or the Rolex Masters, we need to cultivate brands that can benefit from the current demographic closer to home. But over time, I'm convinced that snooker can only reach its potential as a global sport if it deals with this structural issue. What is needed here is a growth strategy, and not one from the playbook of the PDC, but from global sports like F1. Perhaps you could get the people responsible for the growth strategy and sponsorship to come on the podcast and tell us what the plan is. Barry Heard is to snooker what Bernie Eccleston was to F1. He did a great job, but new fresh leadership, vision, investment and know-how is needed before the current audience literally dies along with the professional circuit itself. I will follow up in due course with my stories of short conversations with professional snooker players. To end on a positive, I've just watched Jimmy White beat Judd Trump on Matchroom Live. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Giles. Um... Yes, Jimmy beating Judd, that was incredible, really. I saw Jimmy, um, I know we're breaking away from what we're talking about here, but I saw Jimmy uh, the morning of the match, just before he played, in the hotel. He's absolutely buzzing. I tell you, if everyone had the enthusiasm for snooker that Jimmy has, you know, the sport actually would be in a better place. As for getting the people on, well, there are new people at World Snooker Tour. Um, there's a new commercial director, there's a new marketing director, and uh, it would be interesting, I think, at some point. Maybe when they bedded themselves in a bit uh, to speak to them. Uh, now then, is there any more on this? I, there is, but uh, as ever, it's fine. <laughs> you see, some people would say, well, why don't you go through these emails before you start? But, you know, that's no fun, is it? Now uh, then. Uh, well, Callum Law, uh, he's written about, about the WST Classic. I'm going to jump, Callum, to your comments on this. We're going to keep it about the O'Sullivan Will Snooker Tour thing. So I'm really looking forward to the Tour Championship and the World Championship. But aside from that, I found the comments from Ronnie O'Sullivan and Steve Dawson at the SWST Classic very interesting. I think it was a grain of truth in what both were saying. For me, Ronnie is wrong when he says the game's in the worst place it's ever been. And I agreed with Steve that Ronnie could do more as a game's leading player, even if it's just attending meetings and putting forward a few ideas. But on the other side of the argument, it's not the job of players to try to find new tournaments, etc. And I also think WST get very standoffish when they're criticised, which doesn't really help anyone. Open, sensible and reasonable debate and discussion about the way the game is going is required, in my opinion. Well, Callum, you're in the right place, I think, for that, because that's what we try and do here. Open, sensible and reasonable debate and discussion about the way the game is going. That's what we try and do. If I had a, uh, if I had a bumper sticker, that's what I'd put on it. It'd have to be a long bumper sticker, having said that. Mm. Now, this is slightly different, but it's kind of about the same thing. It's from Stephen Durham. It is about the WSD Classic, but he does touch on kind of eras of governance. He says, morning, Dave. Going to try and, and not make this a rant. Here goes. When everyone says that, you, you kind of know it's going to be. But anyway, he says, I wasn't that bothered about the WST Classic, but as we had a couple of weeks without snooker, I thought I'd pay the fiver and get the Matchroom Live coverage of the event. Firstly, the Matchroom Live website. One thing that is glaringly obvious, Matchroom does not do good websites. The WST site is an abomination and should be started from scratch with some competent admin taking charge full-time. Look at the success of the Stephen Hendry Q-Tips YouTube channel. The Matchroom Live coverage had been basic at best and amateur at worst. They didn't start the Trump-White match until the second frame. Unforgivable. No interviews or build-up and no crowd until the last day. Hopefully this will be the last time we see this type of piddly small-time event. It has no place in this supposedly new era of snooker. 
Obviously, the loss of tournaments in China has been a massive blow, and the recent trip to Thailand shows that Asia is still a huge market for the game, and hopefully next year we'll see a return. I've noticed a few of the top pros are getting into the Premier Pool, and this is a bad sign. I don't think anyone would compare this era with the disastrous and farcical Geoffrey Archer, Sir Rodney Walker eras, but it does seem to be coming stale. Well, I, I've given my view on the tournament. I thought it, it, they did as good a job as they could um, based on the, the, the challenges that they uh, that they faced, but you're entitled. I, I'm sorry if you had problems with the service. I wasn't aware uh, that that first frame wasn't shown. I, in fact, I, I, I literally wasn't aware because no one else has, has said, so I'm not saying it's just you who's had the problem, but uh, but it may be. I don't, I don't know. Uh, anyway, we'll leave it at that because uh, we'll come back to other issues. We've got a lot of banal uh, meetings with snooker players, which is going to be terrific later on, but um, let's talk about this... Uh, this row this week, Ronnie O'Sullivan um, sat down with the, some members of the media in Leicester and gave his opinions about what he saw as the sad state of snooker, lowest, or he said it's probably the lowest he's ever been. Well, Snooker Tour responded at the time um, and then a couple of days later responded again with the statement that's still on the WST website um, some, from Steve Dawson. Um, so this has all been in the news. It's not exactly ideal when you've had a tournament on. Here's my view on this, OK? There are legitimate criticisms to be made about the way any sport, indeed any company, is run. But there are also proper channels players can use to communicate their criticisms. Now, you might argue doing it in the media will make Will Snooker take more notice because, it, you know, people are going to read it there and it's going to be more, maybe more incumbent on them to do something about it. But it also creates problems for the sport in terms of its perception with the public. At the moment, there is a perception that the sport is in a serious crisis. And as someone who works in snooker, I reject this. I don't think it is. I think it's going through some challenges, the most obvious being the current match-fixing inquiry. But the idea that it's all turmoil behind the scenes is nonsense. I've just spent a week behind the scenes, and it was basically the same as it's always been. <laughs> you know, I've been hearing people moaning about things for 25 years, through good times and bad. In fact, for some of that time, I've been the one doing the moaning. The day this O'Sullivan rap was in the papers, I didn't hear anyone at the venue actually talking about it. I went in the players' room and they were sat with John Paris discussing ferals. <laughs> Literally, that's what they were talking about, ferals. So there were no ashen faces or angry reactions. Most people on the circuit just kind of shrugged their shoulders when Ronnie acts like this because they expected of him. Whether you think he's right or not, he's not exactly, it's not exactly unknown for him to unleash like this. Now, on his specific points, it's factually inaccurate to say snooker is in its worst ever state. In 1957, the World Championship was discontinued for seven years. Fifteen years ago, we had six ranking events. Here's a list of tournaments which simply did not exist ten years ago. The Champion of Champions, World Grand Prix, Players' Championship, Tour Championship, European Masters, and three of the four Home Nations events. We have long-term contracts with major broadcasters and streaming services. To say the sport hasn't grown is just wrong. Playing opportunities have increased, as has prize money. What's happened in recent times, of course, is that the Chinese events, many of which, by the way, Ronnie O'Sullivan refused to play in, have fallen by the wayside because of COVID. He says that the people running the sport aren't good enough, but if you sat Ronnie O'Sullivan down in a room, gave him a pen and some paper, and asked him to write down the names of the WST executive team and what they all did, he wouldn't know. He doesn't know because he doesn't engage with them. There was a players' meeting before the WST Classic in Leicester. All players were invited. Most didn't go. Many made excuses, like they always do. I spoke to two players who did attend, both of whom have been you know, quite critical in the past of WST, and they were both actually positive about what they heard. WST have a new commercial director, a new marketing director. They set out their strategy, 
And one of the players told me that they should be time, they should be given time to implement it. I thought that was a mature approach. Okay, we've listened to them, they've listened to us, let's give them time to try and realise what they want to do and let's support them. O'Sullivan says Snooker needs another £50 million a year. He has vague ideas about someone else taking over. Now, obviously, if a major investor came forward, then that would be a game-changer. But at the moment, this seems to be wishful thinking. There's no, there's no one apparently waiting in the wings who've made their sort of presence known or presence felt. I think very rich people actually don't understand how much 80 grand a year is to most people. Snooker players get the chance to win that in a week in a lot of tournaments. Of course, there can only be one winner, but that's the nature of sport. The truth, as I see it, is there's a total lack of discipline in snooker, including self-discipline. There's a general lack of professionalism. It extends to aspects of the governance of snooker, and it extends to the way a lot of people behave. If players want it to resemble golf and tennis, they should look at how people in those sports behave. Just last week, I was in the bar in the hotel after play, one night. There was a player in there, frankly, drunk as a skunk, okay? Ah, it's up to him if he wants to get drunk. That's, that's entirely his right. But the thing is, he'd lost the previous afternoon. He was still at a tournament he'd lost in 36 hours later, rolling around drunk. I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing this doesn't happen that much in either golf or tennis. Now, WST, they hit back with their own statement, signed by the chairman, Steve Dawson, which I personally found to be completely over the top and largely counterproductive. I think it's right that they correct inaccuracies. They should do that. But it was actually, at times, quite personal towards the current world champion, which I don't think helps the situation. And it made them look very sensitive to criticism. The timing of the statement was also appalling. It was released half an hour after the WST Classic final began, which suggests they care more about their personal reputations than their own tournament. They continually trot out the line that snooker is watched by more people than ever. Well, good. But isn't this actually also damning? Because if all the interest is there, where are the new tournaments? Why aren't they cashing in on the great place they say they've got snooker into? We know that there's a problem in China, but the Gibraltar Open disappeared from the calendar this year without anyone explaining why. There was talk about, oh, we'll replace it with something else. They didn't. There's been no explanation. You know, obviously they lost Turkey, which they announced as a five-year deal. It's been on once. It remains to be seen whether it'll be on again. The China situation is because of COVID, but it's also exposed the fact that the European market has not been properly explored. And, you know, we don't have a plan B and we're still waiting on next season's calendar. We don't know. We're hoping to go back to China. But I think the players need a bit more than just hoping. They need solid tournaments. They need a solid calendar. They need to plan their year in ahead. And they want good news, frankly. And, and uh, you know, you can't blame them for that. I would say on venues, O'Sullivan is correct. Many of them are cheap and don't present a good image of snooker. Worse than this, though is that they constantly seem to change. So tournaments struggle to establish their own identities. Here's the thing, OK, and this is the real problem, right? This is the real problem. There are actually two circuits. Now, people love to take the mickey when I talk about the Triple Crown, but it's true. There's two circuits. There's the three BBC events, which have been piled up to be the sports majors, and they get all the money and bells and whistles and all the resources. We saw that at the UK Championship. Fantastic, the way they upgraded that. The Masters is great. Of course, the World Championship is great. So that's all great. But then there's everything else, and everything else is basically treated as an afterthought. Tournaments are shoved into cheap venues, and they change year on year, and they struggle to establish an identity of their own. We have the Tour Championship coming up next week. This is a huge event, and should be treated as such. It should be promoted like the ATP Finals in tennis. Have you seen much promotion of it? I haven't. Not certainly to what it needs. Why isn't there a media day? You know, there's only eight players in it. 
really build it up, build up those eight players. You know, it, it, a tournament that's only got eight players in, you could really go to town on from Will Snooker Tour's perspective. Um, but no, they're just, we have the lineup and we, we turn up there and, you know, that we, we hope that people will come, apparently. I thought the World Grand Prix actually did well in Cheltenham. The crowds were quite good. But apparently it won't be there next season. They're having a different tournament there in another slot. So the World Grand Prix goes to Leicester, but Leicester loses the shootout. Any sense of customer loyalty is lost if it's an endless carousel of venues just changing and moving around. And it's also hard for many people actually to keep up what these various series mean. You know, how, how do they work? Tournaments need an identity. And certainly when I was growing up, that's what they had. You know, you had the sponsor, the venue, the slot in the calendar, the Rothmans Grand Prix in Reading, the Coral UK in Preston, you know, the, the Benson Edges Masters at Wembley. You knew exactly where the tournaments were in the calendar, the venues. They had the same sponsors. They had identities. And that's what we're kind of lacking at the moment. I'm not pretending any of this is easy. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's really hard. It's a very competitive sporting world, broadcasting world. I think snooker's do better than a lot of sports. We have a, a huge footprint on free-to-air television in Britain. We have major broadcasters around the world, streaming services. We are in front of a lot of eyeballs. That is all true. But it doesn't mean we can't do better. Will Snooker Tour get criticised a lot. Not always fairly, but that does come with the territory. They are a rather secretive organisation. They employ a lot of good people, but they also love to close ranks. Barry Hearn was refreshing because he would just go in front of a microphone and mouth off, usually very entertainingly. Steve Dawson's not like that. It doesn't mean he isn't effective, but it's a massive sea change in terms of leadership style. And maybe that also adds to perception. If you don't see the chairman, if you don't see the chairman coming out on TV, on radio, speaking for the sport, maybe that changes people's perception. Maybe they do need outside help. They do work with various partners, but maybe that could be something that they extend. I think that the whole affair basically comes down to this. It's a, and excuse my language, it's a giant pissing contest between a, a few rich men with egos. I don't think either side has covered themselves in glory this week. Of course, many people take sides, depending on what they think about Ronnie O'Sullivan. He has a lot of sycophantic followers who think he can do no wrong. Equally, as a lot of deluded critics who think he can do no right. It's actually very simple. He's not the Messiah, nor is he a very naughty boy. He's a grown man who has professional responsibilities to a sport which has made him very rich. And he's rich for two reasons. Because he's really good at snooker, but also because there's a commercial structure around the sport which enables him to make money. And that structure exists because of the hard work of others. It also exists because Ronnie and other players have helped to keep snooker on the map through the way they play and the way they entertain people. So the two sides need each other. There's not one camp and another camp. It's all really one camp. And that one camp needs to work out how to work together for the good of the sport. As I was leaving the Morningside Arena on Wednesday night, the table fitters were moving in to dismantle all the tables. This is hard work, lugging slates around. You know, it's pretty pretty tough, actually. And there's been a lot of injuries. And, you know, you see those guys that... You know, it, 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 they're worn down by it a lot of the time. These guys have been working all hours, doing their best. They sum up the many people who work on the World Snooker Tour who don't get paid fortunes, but keep the plate spinning, who have passion for the sport and want it to thrive. All they seem to get from players and social media is abuse, and that is unfair. In fact, it's not unfair, it's just plain wrong. The way I look at it is this. We all love snooker. If it was a person and it was struggling, you wouldn't stand there berating it, you'd help it. If it was a relative of yours who was ill, you wouldn't blame them for the illness, you'd help them. 
If you're walking down the road and an elderly woman had fallen over because the paving slabs weren't level, you wouldn't stand there criticising the council for not having the paving slabs level. You'd put out your hand and you'd help her up. We all have a role to play. The people who run the sport, the players, the media, the various tour partners, and indeed the fans, including the fans on social media. We are responsible, collectively, for the image of snooker and its success. And we should all do our best to be constructive and help in any way we can, rather than sit on the sidelines criticising as if it's nothing to do with us. Because that's the choice. Moan and complain, or try and bring about positive change by working together. I know which side I'm on. I know where I'll be. I'll be where I always am, at the snooker. Now then, <laughs> now we've got all that off our chest, we can go back to uh, more, more prosaic matters, really. I, I sort of cut Callum Law short earlier, but we'll go back to the WST Classic, shall we? He said it was nice to see Mark Selby back playing, back winning again at the WST Classic. I have to be honest, I didn't, didn't see much of it. It seems like Mark played very well, given the players he beat and the manner of some of the victories. He's had a funny sort of season, Mark. Winning two ranking titles is clearly a great achievement. But those two tournaments aside, I don't think he's played that well, which obviously, when everything clicks, he's still very capable of winning any event he enters. I was pleased to see John, Rick, John Higgins put a decent run together before losing to Selby with the World Championship on the horizon. I'm starting to convince myself John can win it again. I know I'm being a bit optimistic, but he's been there over the course before and has beaten all the big hitters across all formats plenty of times before. In my mind, it would be very Higgins-like to come from nowhere and win it again. One thing I think every snooker fan would like is for Jimmy White to be playing at the Crucible one last time. And given the form he's in for the first time in 10 to 15 years, it actually looks like it might be possible for him to qualify. If there's one match that demonstrates what a brilliant sport snooker is, it's Jimmy beating Judd Trump at the WST Classic. It's hard to think of any other sport where one of the game's all-time legends at the age of 60, he could beat one of the modern era's top players. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a terrific win. I have to say it got very sticky. I mean, in the end, it got, I mean, in Jimmy's own sort of phrase, Shredsville, and we, we spoke about Shredsville the other week, but uh, in the end, he had he had match ball literally unmissable over a pocket because Trump had to tried to swerve to hit the yellow, which is over a pocket, and he missed it, and Jimmy couldn't miss it but apart from that it was it was very sticky but yes it was it was uh it, yeah i mean listen he, he's already talking up his own crucible chances which I, I always kind of worries me but you're right he's playing well and he's got a chance i suppose alpha bonzi has come in with his three questions he says after a good week in leicester when one of their own came good in mark selby my three quick questions are and i'll answer these one after another uh is there any potential for the classic to become an annual event it seems a waste for it to be a one-off <clears throat> I was thinking about this, Alpha. I mean, I think I, I do feel that the, the, the sort of model of having you know uh, that sort of event played over a week, maybe not a full ranking event, but sort of if you're looking to get more tournaments and more participation for the players, if you could make it um, pay because they did lose money on it because it was such a big prize fund, you know, it was nearly half a million, eighty thousand to the winner. If you could run a lower prize money event, back to the sort of old PTC model and make money off the streaming then that might be sustainable. Now, I haven't got all the information in front of me whether that is possible or not. You might need more tables, uh, because the format was a bit odd. I mean, you know, on day four, we were still in round one. <laughs> and then on the last two days, we played five rounds. So it was odd. I think that would need to be tweaked. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's something in possibly something like this again. Anyway, we'll see. Question two, what can we expect from the Tour Championship? Surely no one could have predicted this lineup at the start of the season. Well, no, I mean, absolutely not. But what we can expect, I think, is actually some close matches. I mean, this is a massive event for the players who are in it. And, they're, you know, they're, they're big hitters, the people in it. They're all they're all tournament winners. Um, they're not the absolute stars, but 
you become a star if the spotlight's on you, and, that, and it's going to be this week. Um, in Hull, it's going to be very interesting, I think. Number three, as fun as it is keeping up with the race to Hull, are there now too many ranking, seeding and, ra- and races to wherever lists, both one and two years? Well, don't say that to Matt Hewitt from the WP USA because, of course, he's uh, he's the rankings man. He loves he loves a rankings race, Matt, and there's plenty going on. Um, I think, well, it's an interesting point. Are there too many? It's not that there are too many. It may be, as I said, in my sort of uh, in my um, earlier uh, missive, if you like, it may be that uh, we need more sort of explanation of what they are. Um, whether the general public care, though, if you come into Hull and have a nice day at the snooker, do you care how people have got there? I don't know. Maybe? I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> we'll move on. Now, of course, we had brief meetings with snooker players and banal conversations you've had with them, which is a new segment. And this is, you know, there are other podcasts and they do their best, but, but do they have this? <laughs> Obviously enough, they don't. Anyway, Richard writes, he says, following on from last week's brief meetings with snooker players and banal conversations you've had with them segment, I have two to add to the list. I once met Mark Selby after Alex Higgins' funeral in Belfast in 2010. I shook his hand and said, hi, Mark, it's good to meet you. He laughed and replied, it's good to meet you too. <laughs> this is exactly the stuff we're after. Uh, and then he says, in 2018, I met Mark Allen in Bel- at Belfast City Airport Starbucks when he was starting his journey to China for the International Championship. I said, all the best for the tournament. And he replied, thanks very much, mate. I appreciate that. And then he went on to win that tournament, making a record number of centuries along the way. I like to think me wishing him luck is what spurred him on to success. Finally, just following on from the spotted cue ball chat from a few weeks ago, I feel it would be a great addition to the shootout and a good tournament to trial it, to trial it in to see how players and spectators feel about it. Is this something that's been talked about behind the scenes? Uh, I don't know if it has been. I mean, yeah, you're right. I think the shootout probably would be, if you're going to do it, the, pro- the, uh, the shootout would be the, the obvious place to start, but I, I'm not aware that it has been discussed. <coughs> um, Marlon writes, he says, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Couldn't resist getting in touch regarding your suggestion for sharing chance encounters with snooker players. I've only had one such encounter, but it was in Las Vegas, of all places, a few years ago, whilst on holiday. I've been playing poker in a relatively low-stakes game for a couple of hours when the bloke next to me was replaced by a fellow Brit, something of a novelty. We immediately struck up a conversation, and he had been chatting for a while before I asked him what he did for a living. I'm a professional snooker player, he replied. As perhaps the only person in Las Vegas to have brought that month's issue of snooker scene with them to read on the plane, I considered this something of a stroke of luck. So we chatted about the game for a bit. This was March 2016. He was soon to be attempting to qualify for the Crucible, where he'd never played. Now, what I like about Marlon's email, he's building up. He's not gone in who it is. You've got to sort of work it out at home. People on the... You see, lesser podcasts will take a break now. You're like Chris Tarrant on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But we're not going to do that. We're going to carry on. Uh, soon attempt to qualify for the Crucible, where he'd never played. Sam Baird didn't win anything in poker that night, but a few weeks later, he did qualify to play at the Crucible for the first time and took Mark Selby very close in the second round. A dramatic finish on a Saturday night, his career highlight. As chance encounters with snooker players go, I'll take this one. Thanks for the podcast. If anything, this arcane should ever crop up again, I'll be sure to write in. Yeah, I mean, Sam Baird played brilliantly. I remember that match very very well. He played brilliantly and only just lost. I think Selby went on to uh, to win the tournament. Gareth Williams, he said, I wrote to you just over a month ago for the first time to share some of my thoughts with you about the Welsh Open and how I felt that becoming part of the Home Nation series in the 2016-17 season somewhat devalued the tournament. I really enjoyed hearing your counterpoints to my own and, in fact, found myself agreeing with them in the end. <laughs> in hindsight, I did not consider the state of the tour back when the Welsh Open was just a standalone event and its status within the few ranking events on the tour at the time. The main point, I suppose, I was trying to make was that it lost some originality, i.e. had its own trophy in becoming part of the series. But in the grand scheme of things, this is menial 
And as I said, still very much look forward to each of the Home Nations events. Thanks for answering in a kind and thoughtful manner. Not at all. We move on, Gareth. You say, anyway, onto the main topic of my email, which is a story for your new series, which in last week's episode you entitled Brief Meetings and Banal Conversations with Snooker Players. This can definitely go mainstream, I feel. Well, I, you know, I'm, there's been television interest. There hasn't, of course, obviously. Anyway, it says, my story involves Gary Wilson and his run to the semi-finals of the Welsh Open in 2018. Both me and my uncle decided a few months previously to take a trip down to Cardiff for the Thursday, as this was the best day to see, with the last 32 and last 16 all taking place on that day. Little did we know that this was about to become a three-day trip as we got stranded in Cardiff due to the infamous beast from the east. I live only half an hour from Cardiff, but we got stranded in the city due to the trains being cancelled a little before the afternoon session concluded. When we walked out of the venue that evening, we couldn't believe our eyes. It was as if the venue had been transported to somewhere in the middle of the Arctic Circle. We had an all-day ticket, so made the most of it. Went back in to watch the evening session uh, and checked into a hotel. That was Thursday. The meeting with Gary Wilson came on Friday morning. We were walking away from the venue after buying tickets for the O'Sullivan Higgins quarterfinal later that evening, after accepting we would be stuck for another night, when someone struggling to wheel a suitcase along the snowy and icy pavements was coming towards us. It was none other than Gary Wilson himself. We said hello and asked where he was going, to which he said he was on his way to check into another hotel after, in his own words, not expecting to still be in the tournament this late. We wished him luck for his semi-final match and then went on our way. Nothing else to add, <laughs> other than it was a totally chance meeting, not one that we expected to have, but brightened our day nonetheless. I think this more than fits the category of a meeting you were looking for. We eventually got back home on Saturday afternoon when trains resumed, if you were wondering. This was my first trip to see Snooker Live at a venue, so it will always stand out in my memory. Looking forward to hearing more stories in addition to my own on the next edition of the podcast. Well, this is perfect, Gareth. This is perfect, because the key thing about this is nothing meaningful needs to be exchanged, OK? We don't want any real revelations. We just want... You acknowledged each other. They've been friendly. You've been friendly. I remember that uh, that uh, snowstorm and, and fair play for coming to the tournament that day. We had quite a few people who uh, who came out um, and uh, indeed trudged through the snow the next day. Um, it was uh, a lot of the players were, were stuck there actually. Um, but anyway, thank you for that. We'll have more on that hopefully uh, next week. Do do keep them coming in if you've ever met a snooker player and had a, a banal chat with them. Um, <coughs> now. Uh, We've got another one here. Just literally, just come in as, I, as I'm recording. This is hot off the press. I've not not gone through this already, so it may be uh, maybe libelous. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, Stuart May, he says, uh, I'd like like to start by thanking yourself, Stephen Hallworth, and Dominic Dale for all the sterling work and commentary during the WST Classic. Must have been an exhausting, although enjoyable week for you all. As whenever I tuned in to watch Table One, there you were. Here's the thing, Stuart. Okay, thank you for that. It's very kind of you. Stephen Hallworth did do Day One because Dominic was playing, and Dominic got knocked out. <laughs> well, Snooker, they engaged us, and we were, we're not. Pay- I'm not. I don't want the violin coming out here. I'm not asking for sympathy, but we weren't paid what we would normally be paid. But we agreed to do it on those terms. But Will Snooker said, um, "Oh well, don't worry. You know, if it gets too much, we, we'll give you a match off." It turned out under the contract they had with providing the world feed, they had to commentate every match on table one. So there was no actual chance to have a match off. We did a couple of matches on our own to have a session off. But anyway, that, uh, thank you for your, what you say. He said, uh, I felt encouraged to write in following a listener's email last week sharing their experience with an encounter at Stuart, with Stuart Bingham at an airport. As an avid racegoer, I've spotted many players at various racecourses from back in the 90s. I've spotted John Verger at Sandown Park, John Parrott at York, Andy Hicks at Lingfield, Peter Ebden at Windsor, and for Greyhound Racing, Jimmy White at Wimbledon, and your co-commentator Neil Folds at Wembley when they raced on Sunday mornings. My first encounter, though... When I'd not been living in London that long and attended the 1991 
Epsom Derby. I'd just arrived at the track and was perusing the odds boards when I saw a familiar face. And without thinking, nor meaning to say that loud, yelled, Gary Wilkinson. At this point, Gary swung around to see who this nutter was that was shouting his name and said yes. I then chatted with him for a few minutes and he was very friendly to talk to. Among other things, I told him how much I was looking forward to the return of Alex Higgins as it was the end of a band coming up. However, I later realised that I failed to mention the yellow that he, Gary, missed whilst on a 147 just a few weeks earlier that cost my, me a £10 bet at 14 to 1. Luckily, I struck the same bet the following year when Jimmy made the maximum. I'm sure Gary would have loved you to have uh, talked about that. <laughs> I'm sure he couldn't wait to discuss it. Anyway, he says, uh, We talked about the day's races, compared notes, and went on our merry way. As for the result of the derby, neither of us backed the winner. Uh, generous, and I backed a horse called Corrupt. Gary said he was backing Toulon. This is all very detailed. He says, I don't think I've had the courage to approach any snooker player that I've spotted since that day. However, my brief chat was initiated by my subconscious explanation and will live long in my memory. Well, if anyone else has shouted out the name of a snooker player, this could be an even more niche uh, uh, topic of discussion. If you ever shouted out the name of a snooker player um, unwillingly, then, you know, do let us know. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what, ha- what legs that feature has. Uh, now then, <coughs> what else do we have here? Of course, well, there was news um, this week. Mock King has been suspended. Uh, he arrived for his match and was sort of interviewed and, and was, has been suspended over uh, allegations about uh, betting irregularities. Nick Cowie writes, thanks for the podcast. It's really good to have so many people mailing in every week and hearing your views on a variety of snooker topics. I was very disappointed to hear Mark King has been suspended this week due to an initial investigation of irregular betting patterns of a match he was involved in at the Welsh Open. On the flip side, it's really good to see this has been flagged and good work is going on in the background to regulate... Uh, sorry, I've lost my place... Uh, to regulate betting patterns and the potential issues surrounding the problem. This issue seems to be more frequently brought to light over recent times than in the past. Without getting into the details of whether or not the recent players that are suspended have done anything wrong, there's clearly an issue that may well have been present over many decades. It's only now with online betting it's easier to regulate, perhaps. Just on that, Nick, that may be true, but also the fact that there is so much online betting in so many markets has maybe led to more problems, actually, more temptation and more... Uh, yeah, more difficulty in terms of people thinking they can sort of get away with it. I'm not nothing to do with anyone who's been suspended. Just I'm talking in general. Uh, he said, Nick goes on. I've always enjoyed listening to Mark King speak about his gambling issues in the past. He speaks openly that he's had problems with his issues, con- conquered that affliction. I find it disappointing. This week's news of his suspension could indicate all is not well if it comes to light. There's wrongdoing in his part. Well, of course, we will find out in due course exactly what that is. He says, the recent run of suspensions over this subject means it's not a sweep under the carpet issue due to the number of players under investigation. Your opinion on the following. You've been around snooker for a long time, so I'd love to hear your opinion on where the sport and brand of WST need to go now to clean up its image. It's 10% of the Pro Tour are now concurrently suspended. It's not quite 10%, is it? It's, uh, it's 11, so, well, it's a, what is that? It's not quite 10%, but I suppose you're not far off. He says, is there some level of damage to how the sport is perceived in your opinion? Will this lead to loss of confidence amongst fans and sponsors of the sport as a whole? I have to say it's quite hard, actually, for me to know that because I'm involved in the sport. So people outside would have a better idea. It's obviously a bad thing, but like you say, it's a good thing it's being dealt with. Every sport has cheating of some sort. Normally, it's trying to gain an advantage to win. We've had, obviously, drug-taking in a lot of athletic sports and people trying to gain an advantage. This is the opposite, of course. What's being investigated is people losing deliberately. Um... It's still wrong, and it clearly can't do the game any good. But if an example is made of people who've done it, 
and are found guilty of it, then maybe that will discourage others and maybe that will lead to, you know, better, kind of better times ahead. <coughs> Fionn Lynch writes, I'm reading Ken Doherty's autobiography, Life in the Frame, and just realised that on the cover it says Ken Doherty with David Hendon. Unless you're about to reveal that there are multiple David Hendons in snooker, I'm going to assume that this is you. I have a couple of questions related to this. Do you have any distinct memories of working on this book with Ken? And how does working with someone on a book work? Do you give the pointers or do you write the book? And if the latter, do you do it in the same room as him or do you do it on your own? I know it's probably a surprise to get an email about a 12-year-old book, but I only recently got the book from a family friend so I could get it signed by my hero at an exhibition. I was going to in Killarney in the south of Ireland. Thanks, for And I'm guessing the hero is Ken rather than myself. But anyway, <laughs> well, it was a pleasure working with Ken. Uh, he asked me to do it. Um, the way it worked was quite simple. I spent some time with him, uh, sitting down with him. I went to stay with him in Ireland and met his family and got a sense of who he was. And we agreed a sort of structure for the book, which was um, partly about his career and partly a sort of journal of where his career was at the time, which was not in a great place. Um, he just turned 40 and he'd fallen down the rankings and career had taken a bit of a turn. He was starting to do more media and there was a sense that his best playing days were behind him. And I think he accepted that. Um, but as a, as a person to, to, to deal with, I mean, the problem really, I suppose, with Ken is that he's never really done anything wrong. You know, it's not a sort of, you know, drink and drug story or anything like that. None of that, um, tale of redemption. No, he's just been a nice guy all his life, really. And, and but hopefully that comes across. Um, and in terms of how I wrote it, I interviewed him. We agreed on the sort of what the chapters would be about. I would write up what he'd said in his own voice, and he would agree it, and then that would be the that would be the book. So that's kind of quite standard way of sort of ghostwriting any book. But I'm glad it's still out there, and, and hopefully you'll uh, you'll enjoy it. Uh, just on the on the uh, betting irregularities and all that, the, Ian, Ian uh, is asking, will it be a public hearing? No, it won't be. Um, it's a private hearing that starts, oh, I believe, on the 25th of April. There's some question marks about when it will finish because if it's still going on when Q School starts, then Q School, you know, players at the moment obviously will have to go to Q School. Whereas if the if the hearing was done before that and players were suspended, and this is all ifs and buts and rhetorical and whatever, but if that happened, maybe those players wouldn't have to go to Q School. So it's not ideal, but it's sort of out of Will Snooker's hands how it's going to work. Um, let's go to Adam Fisher uh, just writing regarding Ryan Evans' comments about women versus women live broadcast matches there's been a bit of chat about this sure there's some low hanging fruit there could be a women's shootout run at the same time as the main competition invite the top 16 women or so extending the shootout for an extra day should accommodate this I'd be super interested in this event also to kick off next year's tournament there could be a charity shield type event where the winning male plays the winning female Maybe a bit of unpolitically correct spice, but I'd be the first to buy a ticket. And I think it's time Joe O'Connor had a nickname. So he's completely different. But I'll just on that. Well, that's not the worst idea I've heard by any means, uh, Adam. Uh, nothing wrong with that idea. He says, I think it's time Joe O'Connor had a nickname. I'm a big fan of his and I'm throwing in the Terminator into the hat. He's the grinding type of robotic poker face nuisance I'd hate to play against. <laughs> I loved his comment last week about him liking it when his opponents get worked up. Note that his surname O'Connor is similar to that of the Connor characters in the Terminator movies. How fitting and how sad of me, a 37-year-old bloke thinking up snooker player nicknames. But it's up to you now, Dave. Get it out there when you're commentating. Well, thank you. I mean, we'll see. it's a little bit striven for, but then again, a lot of the, a lot of the nicknames are, Frank. We'll do two more, because I've... Uh, not, not that anyone cares, but I've got to go out. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I'm entitled to. Uh, Robbie says, Firstly, as it's customary to say at the start of one's correspondence, I'm a big fan of the podcast and indeed your commentary. Thank you, Robbie. Tell that to Wilt Snuku, who thought I'd discontinued it. Anyway, all I have for you is a short and possibly daft question. If, hypothetically, the points in a frame were tied when it reached the final black and the player at the table potted the black but the cue were went in off, would the frame immediately be awarded to the other player or would the black come back out with the offending player given a chance to play for a respot. This fate befell me in a frame against my dad recently, and after I initially protested that I could still mathematically draw level on points, he insisted he was the winner on a bow to his superior experience. Well, the frame ends when the black is either potted or fouled, so your dad was right on this occasion. Um, had, had he been... Uh, who was the one who fouled here? Uh, I didn't... Oh, it's hypothetical. Oh no, you're this fate, fate befell me. Well, say you were, say you were seven behind, okay, and your dad went in off. The points would then be level, and it would be a respot, okay. Uh, but in other circumstances, the frame either ends when the black is potted or fouled. Um, yeah. So uh, we'll do one more. And apologies to anyone who's well, these will be stored up for a later a later date. Um, I'm just trying to. Find the one. Ah, oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Owen Burt. That's oh, quite a long one, but I will read it out. Uh, he says, I'm writing in regards to an email that was read out last week about how Will Snooker Talk could be doing more in terms of content output in order to grow the game. Whilst I agree that more could always be done, I really do think us as fans need to look at ourselves and what we could do. As I discussed on the Talking Snooker podcast last summer, if you take football as an example, social media is filled with all different types of content about a vast range of topics and the Premier League and FA certainly aren't the leading lights of influential content creators. While content from governing bodies has its value in terms of access to players and production value, people like hearing the thoughts of other normal people, something they can relate to and trust. Not saying you can't trust governing bodies, but you get the point. Video is the daddy these days when it comes to creating content and building a following. However, apart from match highlights, interviews and compilations of past moments, as far as I can see, there is next to no authentic content being created about snooker apart from Stephen Hendry's recent efforts, which is certainly having an impact. Of course, it's extremely difficult for a fan to do what Hendry's doing, but I think there's a lot we can take from other sports. Again, looking at football, people do live watch-alongs of matches, do football challenge videos with their mates, and generally make comments about their thoughts and feelings about current affairs in the sport. Aside from discussions on forums and Twitter and a smattering of excellent podcasts, Snooker doesn't have a lot of all of that. We need someone to bite the bullet and break the mould than other people will follow. If I was more confident and natural in front of camera, I would do it myself. I guess this is more of a cry out for people to get out there and give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And it just might be that you gain a following and do something positive with the sport at the same time. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you, Owen. Well, you say <coughs> someone should do it, and you, you also say you could do it, and you could. And it might be a disaster, let's be honest. But what if it isn't? There's only one way to find out. Let's give it a go. The only way it won't work is if you don't do it. So the points you make are good ones. There could be more. You know, this ties in really with what I was saying earlier. The sense that it's up to somebody else to do everything. No, it's up to everybody. Inside the snooker circle, inside the bubble. And people are in different positions. And some people are more influential than others. But everyone has a part to play. I believe that. And you look at, I mentioned Matt Hewitt earlier. You know, he started his pro snooker blog just as a, a sort of fan. And people realised very quickly how good it was, how good he was, and now he's the media representative of the WPBSA and works on the Women's Tour and the Disabilities Tour and is doing a great job. 
just been around the world, basically, <laughs> to various places working for all those organisations. So, but that starts with him sitting down and starting his blog. And I'm sure he felt when he did that, this might not be any good and no one would be interested, but it turned out they were. So why not start a podcast? Why not start a, video, a YouTube account? Do something. If you feel you've got something to contribute, give it a go. If you've got something to say, give it a go. Why, what, can, what can be the worst that can happen? Um, the worst that can happen, I suppose, is people just ignore it. Well, fine. If, if that happens, move on to something else. So let us know how you get on. Now, as I say, there's, um, <laughs> there are other uh, emails that I've not dealt with, but we will be returning um, in the future. And uh, in the future, there's a, there's a promise. Uh, we, next week, hopefully, but not next Monday, but after the Tour Championship. It's been a very busy time. Um, and, uh, what I hope is that we can now get on with the snooker. I think there's been too much navel-gazing. It's a sport that seems to love that. It's a sport that seems to love diagnosing problems but not coming up with solutions. We know things could be better and we must be vigilant and we must you know, scrutinise the actions of those in power. But equally, let's all try and be a bit more professional. And also, let's just try and enjoy it. It's supposed to be enjoyable, isn't it? This sport. Isn't it supposed to be enjoyable? I would say so. I'm determined to enjoy it. I'll enjoy Hull. It's a great tournament, the uh, Tour Championship. So, anyway, we're, <laughs> we're proud members of the uh, Sports Social Network. Uh, check out the other podcasts. You can, of course, email us um, at uh, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Um, but that's it uh, for, for this week. And uh, just a reminder that, uh, you know, this uh, this podcast continues. There's a lot of people, not a lot of people, but uh, some people seem to think it's, it's finished. It hasn't finished. We're coming up to our 250th episode very soon. This podcast began in 2015. A lot's happened since then, let's be honest. Uh, nearly eight years of, of this and uh, a lot will continue to happen and, and in the, the words of the great and much missed Stephen Sondheim good times and bum times I've seen them all and my dear I'm still here Sports Social Podcast Network <laughs>